APTA is providing regular updates and guidance on COVID-19. On April 19th, we recorded a video dialogue with James Newman and Yusra Iftikhar discussing volunteer service on the front lines during the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's that discussion. Since today, we're just going to kind of get right into it. Today, we're going to be talking with James about his experience as a physical therapist now working in acute care, working with patients with uh, coronavirus, and sort of what his experience has been like. As always, you can drop your questions into the comments, and thank you to everyone who's sending questions beforehand. Um, I know James from his role on the Student Assembly Board of Directors. James, you were on the board for two years straight, correct? First as nominating committee chair-elect, then as nominating committee chair. Um, James is my main mentor in this whole process that I went through to become uh, director of communications. So not only is he a friend of mine, but he's someone that I've looked up to for a very long time. So thank you for joining me on this, James. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. There's been a, a lot of really great support out there, you know, across social media. A lot of people have reached out to me personally and had a lot of really positive things to say. It's been a wave of just really amazing things. My dog's whining a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, but it's uh, it's been a pleasure to watch you and the other board members blossom into something pretty great this year, especially with all the craziness that's happened. No, oh, thank you. That's very sweet. Um, speaking of the craziness that's been happening, so tell me a little bit more about your current situation, where you're currently working, um, where you came from, what it's been like. Just kind of give us a little bit of background on yourself and what you're doing now. Yeah, so um, I was one of those. I graduated last May, and I came out and went into travel therapy pretty quickly. Uh, a good opportunity opened up with my fiance and how things worked out like that. Uh, I was doing outpatient ortho with acute care on the weekends, kind of when it started um, with my 10 weeks of acute care clinical experience. And then I picked up a job at St. Francis in downtown Greenville, which is a Vaughn Secours Mercy Health uh, hospital system. And I've been working in their outpatient therapy since October, you know, picking up a weekend here and there in acute care and some patients. And I'm familiar with their system because fortunately I was a student there. And then as of, I guess it's now four weeks ago, five weeks ago, whenever I, I tweeted that, I, uh, I got put on an ambulation team as people were getting furloughed and redeployed. And then our director of rehab asked if a couple of people wanted to volunteer to work with the COVID rollout, COVID positive patients. And I said, heck yeah, let's, uh, let's do it. So what drove you to say yes so fast? Um, thank you. Uh, <laughs> it was, honestly, it was pretty easy. I mean, there's a lot of us out there who would give every opportunity to be in the shoes that I'm in. One, just to have work and a schedule in front of you where you're using the skills with all practice for so long, but also because it just, it's a situation where it felt right. I mean, I felt, I feel very close to all of my coworkers, both in the hospital and in the outpatient clinic. I, I like them. We talk a lot and being in the position I was in to where, you know, young, healthy, keep in good shape, eat right. I, my, my thought process was, well, honestly, with all the craziness and all the newness, if somebody's going to get it, I feel like I have the best chance of fighting this thing off and recovering and getting back to work. Sure, sure. Um, so you were in outpatient ortho before and then now in acute care. So um, it was your job, correct, that, that kind of transitioned you into that role? And you, you said you volunteered as well. So it was kind of a combination of the job was already looking for people, and then you also kind of stepped up. 
Yeah, that's, that right? uh, that's pretty much, yeah, that's pretty much how it all worked out. I mean, and again, with some of the people that came out and asked me how it all happened, I think fortunately I was already a student and they knew me well enough to just insert me right into that role. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you talked about how you had done a clinical in acute care before, but then now kind of stepping into this role where there are skills that you kind of need to brush off. So what's that transition been like? Has it been a big adjustment or have you found yourself able to kind of just fall right back into acute care life? Maybe a little bit of both. I mean, it, it just depends on the situation. I, fortunately, my mentor who was my CI when I was there is still there. And I've made a ton of friends along the way. So I can't tell you how many times I've called people and reached out who are much smarter than me, much more well-equipped to handle these things, uh, where I would say to them, hey, look, I, I got patients presenting with X, Y, and Z lines and leads. And, you know, I'm not sure about certain blood work and, and, and levels. I know we have a, a good spot on the APTA's website that I consult a lot, but I asked them what they had seen with it. I had asked them where they went to, and it, it has gotten me back into a group of things where I feel comfortable in my chart reviews and walking in there feeling like I can take on the world again. Yeah, absolutely. And so in in talking about kind of the help that you've been able to get even outside of, of the hospital, can you talk a little bit about what sort of help and what sort of interprofessional work you're doing inside the hospital? I think the nature of working in acute care already kind of sets you up well right, for working with people of other specialties and um, other professions. So can you tell us a little bit about that side of it and how that has sort of impacted the way that you're now approaching patients um, that you're working with? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think it's intimidating across the board for all of us when we start implementing interprofessional work. Uh, as you start getting closer to your positions and learn how to call and how to talk on a professional level with somebody who you know, maybe intimidating at times, you know, and that goes across the board, nurse practitioners and uh, physician assistants and you know, just all your coworkers you work with that, you know, are referring people to you. Um, in the hospital, you know, since these floors are so tightly, um, I guess, controlled, I've gotten really close with all the staff on those floors. So it comes down to, you know, whoever the physician is on that floor that week, wherever the OT is, it, well, it's been one OT um, with us all the time. They just put one more on the COVID floors. The nurses that are cycling through there, the respiratory therapists, the, um, even the janitorial staff. I mean, everybody in there, we all get together and it's, it's a constant consult with each other of, hey, you know, I went up to the, the MD or the DO or the physician on the room and I said, look, I've seen X, Y, and Z. Here's my objective findings. You know, I know respiratory has been working with them with their two-minute walk test and six-minute walk test and trying to get their oxygen levels down and get that under control. Role, but here's what I've seen. Here's how I'm working with them. It's been one of the greatest things of this whole process, honestly. Just there's there's no barriers. There's no walls. There's no feeling like your opinion is belittled to any extent. You go in and you do what's best for the patient. You tell the people that are on the care team with it, and you're coming together to find the best solution in order to get this person in the best spot possible. If there are moments so far, you'll think you'll always remember. Absolutely. Oh, man. This is a... Uh, this has been incredible from that point of view. Just I've made a bunch of memories working with these people so far. Um, I'd say the it's hard to pick a pivotal moment, but I'd say the one of the biggest moments was when I sat down with the physician who was rounding on the patient, the nurse who had just left the room, the OT who I co-treated with, and we were discussing the patient. And from their point of view and their and their medical scope, he was talking about you know, sending the patient to a home health situation, 
um, or possibly a skilled nursing facility. And as I was talking with him, it, it was more of a matter of like, I know that he hasn't spent a lot of time in that room thus far, but I was just in there with the OT coach reading. And I think this person may have had a stroke between the two intubations and two extubations because they have a lot of severe pusher-like symptoms. And um, there's a lot of other situations going on cognitively that I'd really appreciate if you looked at before making that decision. And, you know, you go about things respectfully just because that's the way we, we do it in the hospital. But there was never a, a situation in that where I felt like he was upset at me or like didn't care about my opinion as far as I was laying it out there. It was a general collaborative effort where he said, okay, let's take a look at that. Maybe let's get a CT of his head and see if that might've been a problem that occurred. Um, I'd say that was a pretty big moment for me because as a fresh PT, you step out in the setting and, you know, I'm a confident guy and I love what I do and I have a big passion for it, but I don't, I don't know everything. And sometimes you're kind of scared to speak your mind, but it came down to it. I stepped up, I made a, I made a call, I made a decision and they came together with me and, you know, lifted me up. And that was pretty special. Can you hear me at all? I can. You can? Yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. Okay. <laughs> um, awesome. Kayla, thank you for that question. That was fantastic. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to touch on with you was the reason that a lot of us were kind of inspired to ask you to be um, our guest for this topic specifically was the Twitter thread that you wrote. Um, and there's something from Twitter that I want to read. Um, you sent out a tweet last month that said, no matter how many times I assure my family and loved ones I'm fine, this is scary. It's lonely at times too, but every time I walk into that hospital, I feel pride. Can you tell me more about what it's been like to deal with all the emotions that go into working in the setting during this time and how you balance that feeling of fear and then how you balance the pride. Yeah. Um, honestly, writing that, I, I'm not a very poetic person by nature, nor do I really write a lot, but that's probably the one media outlet I have that my family doesn't really exist on. I've got a really big family and I'm close to them and they're calling me a lot and they're checking in on me as they know these things. And you kind of have to put on a little bit of a face. Um, to let them know that things are okay and that I'm going to be okay and this is going to pass. Um, and these people need me in there to an extent. So the fear, a lot of it is, is from the loneliness, the isolation, the, the wondering, you know, when, when the contact's going to come, that's going to put me out for two weeks or a month or however long it is, or, you know, this, this virus is not discriminant in who it attacks. You know, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. You know, there's a lot to be said about the comorbidities and other things as well. But, you know, from what I've seen with the exposure I've had thus far is, you know, really there's nobody that's safe. You're just doing the best you can to limit your exposure and time as much as possible. So dealing with the fear has more been about the community that's lifted me up thus far. I mean, my family's great and uh, they're always there with me. But the people in the community, the medical community as a whole, you know, I, and it's been everybody. It's been the student physical therapists and student occupational therapists and student speech language pathologists who have reached out to me in my personal inboxes, physicians, nurses. I mean, every professor across the board who's sent me letters of encouragement, they said, thank you. They said, you know, we're, we're so proud of you. We want, we want to be there with you, but we can't. How can we help? I mean, there's there's been nobody out there who's, propagated that fear to a point to where it made me feel like I was alone. And that's how I've been dealing with this fear. 
to the most part, you know, and the pride comes from similar to that story I told earlier. There's, um, I have a lot of pride in my hospital. That's why I chose to stop traveling and come to the spot. I'm close with the people and the professionals I work with. I think they do a good job of setting you up for success. And it follows a lot of my personal beliefs and how I get to treat and how people are treated as a whole. Uh, so I've always had a lot of pride in, but in this setting and in this environment with what's happened, they stepped right up. They didn't slow down. They didn't, you know, try to skirt around it. They said, we're, this is a problem. This is a new situation we're facing and we need to put our professionals, our workers, our family in a position to succeed. And the physician stepped in, the nurse practitioners, the nurses, the physician assistants, everybody got on board. There was nobody who felt it so incredibly overwhelmed and that they were in this alone through this whole thing from the start, you know, as a, as a, a physical therapist walking onto that floor, it was all hands on deck. You know, we're here, we're fighting this thing, we're in it together and day in, day out, we'll take the fight to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I'm glad you have that support where you're working now. And I know that in that Twitter thread, you talked a little bit too about some of the personal sacrifices you had to make. Um, you talked about sending your fiance away so that you would reduce the risk of, you know, transferring the virus to her if it were to come to that. So can you uh, tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you're doing for yourself to keep yourself healthy? Elise asked a really great question. And she said, what are you doing to keep yourself healthy physically, mentally, and emotionally? And is there any way that you can think of that we can support you or any workers on the front lines right now beyond staying home? Oh, man. Um, you know, from, from our community, the medical community, we've done such a great job of lifting all of us up that are working, that are furloughed, that are in a position of unknown, maybe filing for unemployment right now. I mean, it's been a whirlwind. You know, sending my fiance away was, in, in my eyes, in my very small world, it was a tragedy. It, it's a tragic event that's happened in our engagement because, you know, we were seeing each other for a little bit for the first time in a while. And I told her that it might happen. And when they told me I was gonna start working with them, I, I called her at work and I said, you have to leave tomorrow morning. And that was heartbreaking. I mean, you know, the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with, you know, my best friend. Um, and she's not there to support me other than over the phone. So, I mean, what I've been doing to keep myself in the best possible mental condition I can be is, is sticking to a routine as much as possible. Uh, I'm somewhat of a creature of habit. I like to work out a lot. I like to have social interaction a lot. Um, I like my dog, obviously she's sweet as can be. She's been my company this, this whole time. Uh, but I stay active. I stay away from people. Um, obviously I couldn't go to the gym anymore when they were open. I couldn't see my sister was right down the road, but I mean, just like everybody else is doing, I'm FaceTiming, I'm Zooming, I'm playing games with my friends, I'm talking on the phone. It's not the same. It's not the same kind of quality time I get or the love or energy I get from being around them. But as of right now, it means the world to me. And it means the world to me to see everybody coming together to hear the stories. I've always loved that, hearing stories about other people dealing with their situations. And on Twitter, it pops up a lot. I've had some friends that have been very closely affected by this that I've reached out to. And, you know, hearing them and how they're working through it and with it keeps me healthy to an extent. You know, it makes me have a lot of hope in what's going on and inspires me to keep going. Absolutely. And you being someone who's so connected to other people's stories, I'm sure helps you a lot too in sort of quelling the fears of people that you're you know, working with in the hospital, specifically your patients. Um, 
Aaron asked a question about how important it's been to address the mental health of your patients. So do you feel like going through this and, and having feeling that impact on your personal life has helped you at all or impacted the way that you're now communicating with and helping your patients in the hospital? Uh, I think you, you asked about their mental health and their, their situation. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're fine. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. I just didn't understand. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So their mental health and has there been any sort of anything that you're bringing in from your personal life? Because you felt an impact personally, too, as have, I'm sure, a lot of health professionals in this time. And so you feel like that has at all changed or shaped the way that you're addressing your patient's mental health. Yeah, it's so funny because being taught in school recently, I mean, y'all, a lot of y'all are still in school and they teach you the model of, of how we practice and everything that goes into it that's not physical. And you bring that to the table, we all do it to an extent. Especially in the hospital, it's, it's really unique to sit and listen and talk with these people. This time has been exponentially different. I, I've walked into two of these rooms and I, I build for nothing. I didn't do any therapeutic activity, exercises, nothing. I walked in there and they told me they didn't want to do anything. So I sat in there with a gown, a mask, an N95, goggles, gloves, everything you think of. And I screamed at them. That's the only way they could hear me through the state gear. And I said, just talk to me. What's going on? How do you feel in here? Because these people... If you haven't been in one of those isolation rooms, if you treated somebody who had TB before or something of the like, you know what it's like. You walk in, they can't have visitors. There's nobody on the floor that's checking on them super often because we're conserving PPE. They can barely reach their phone sometimes to answer their family members or the chaplain that's calling them or whoever's trying to get in touch with them. Their mental health is on the fringe a lot of times. And I've seen very weird mental declines with this virus. And people that cognitively just lose it for a little bit. And it's hard for them to deal with because there's nobody there to, to bring them back up, back from the ledge. And so how that's impacted me personally is I've already been a social guy. I mean, I like talking with these people. But even more so, it's it's pushed me to ask them more about their families and their lives and how they're feeling in that moment because most of them are scared. They feel dehumanized. They feel like, you know, they can't talk to anybody. And that's us. You know, that's the physical therapist and the occupational therapist, the respiratory therapist that are in there longer than 10 minutes because we get that opportunity. We get that time and we have to give it to them because you're their lifeline for a little while. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and your patients are lucky to have you in that sense. Um, have you done any sort of communication with like, patients' families and trying to get them in contact with people who would have been their visitors, or is that sort of for uh, is that something that like other health professionals have more so been focusing on? Um, a lot of that is gone through personally. At least our hospital, our nurses do a lot of that, and they talk to the family members, and our physicians call the family members too. Uh, I've done a lot of like communication between them, being the middleman asking about if their uh, children have called or parents have called or whoever it might be, and then recommunicating that into the room with them once I'm in there and catching them up. Or again, a lot of these people, I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot of older patients that are getting it that are frail and don't move quite as well, or they're dealing with a lot of pulmonary exacerbations. So, I mean, obviously you set the phone or whatever it is and they're close enough for them to reach it, but 
if they can't, I've answered their phone several times and just had the conversation for them and with them because it means the world to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yet things that you don't, I personally, you know, still being a student, you mentioned like some of us are still students. It's not something that I don't think I ever would have anticipated, you know, being part of my practice. Um, but I suppose that's kind of the nature of this this global pandemic is that there's a lot that there's, we weren't necessarily at anticipating but it seems like especially at your hospital the way that you talked about your team everyone's really come together um to to uplift each other and to get the work done so you talked a little bit about um you know what you've done for patients and sometimes not doing anything at all a lot of people had questions about specific interventions in the setting for patients with covid and is there anything that you've found yourself prioritizing is there anything that you're doing that might be out of the norm for you in acute care Right, and there's, it's a very fair question. And honestly, I feel like an acute resident, acute care uh, physical therapist resident or somebody who's been working in there longer would definitely be more apt to answer that. Um, I answered the call in a special situation and I'm working within the means in my education, which is profound. I mean, our educations are incredible. So um, as far as doing things that are a little bit different for me, it comes down to you know what I've read, what I think is going to be the best for them using that clinical judgment, and honestly working with the other team members because the first and foremost thing we got to do is get them out of the hospital if we can. I mean, the hospital is just a place where a lot of bad things can happen, and I don't want them in there for it. So for me, a lot of times we're getting in there just trying to develop the strength and the mobility to not be in bed, prevent secondary uh, complications, which is a lot of things we're taught or things we know. And as special things and research comes down, such as the new proning techniques, we're working with that. We're working with the nursing staff on getting patients into those positions. And for me, if I can get them up and get them moving, and sometimes that helps some of their cognitive abilities too. If somebody's been laying there forever and they're, the staff is scared, they're gonna fall and they really rely on us to evaluate that, be there for them, have those interventions at the ready. I would say I'm doing a lot more just uh, mobilization than I would usually. I mean, I'm, I'm an outpatient therapist by trade. I believe in strength. I believe the human body heals itself through the motion and the education we give it. But these people need a lot sometimes. I found myself, you know, always pushing for them to do as much as they can. But being that extra hand, staying in there an extra 10, 20, 30 minutes, whatever it is, if, if it's that long, if it's needed. Um, I wouldn't say there's a special intervention by any means unless I'm talking with the respiratory and getting together and let's, let's consider PPE. You need to do a two minute walk test, I'll do it. You need to do a six minute walk test, I'll do it. You know, I'm, I'm a little more hesitant in my discharge recommendations these days because I've seen some very rapid declines in a very interesting way. So I've had to adjust that on the go and learn as that's gone on. But no, it's not anything incredibly abnormal other than it's just very isolated. Yeah. And you touched on this a little bit already, but um, my friend Erica had a question for you. She's a physical therapist as well. Um, and she has noted that, like, for example, if as a PT, like working a night shift, they may operate a little bit more as aides than as like, a therapist. So is there anything else that you're doing um, that might be you know, different from your typical duties? Um, anything that you didn't touch on yet? Um, I mean, as far as that goes, I mean, just being on top of the humanistic qualities, you know, like there's a lot of times where there's some staff and coworkers that will rely on aids and techs to help clean, dress or bathe, you know, whether it's getting OT in there, letting them help out with whatever that is. 
a lot of times I, I might be hesitant on those things because of how the work environment flows, um, but I'm not anymore because I'm in there, I'm there, I have the gear on, this person needs help now, and that's just the bottom line. Right. Um, so, I mean, as far as typical job duties go, some of that I hadn't paid attention to too much in the past, and that if a patient needs help, I'm just there to help regardless. And in this case, it's even more to that level. You know, even if I do kind of cross the boundaries into some ADLs or dressing, or if I'm cleaning a patient and helping them get new sheets on, or, or you know, just not being there in a situation where they don't need to be in, um, or maybe even assessing wounds a little more than I used to. Okay, that's not something I feel super comfortable with. But I'll tell you what, I check everybody for a bed sore every single time now. <laughs> I look at all those those pressured areas that might be at risk and. I do a pretty thorough evaluation as far as that goes. And it's been just minding my P's and Q's a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so something else that's within our scope and is within the scope of every health professional is education. And so is there any with a coronavirus specific education that your patients have required or ask for? I'm sure you know they're asking questions as well to better understand the condition that they're currently in and what to expect after discharge. So is that something you're finding yourself engaging in more? Yeah, I actually had a talk with a couple of the physicians on the floor about that, especially ones that they're looking for the discharge um, in, in the near future. Because my thing with them was, what do I need? How do you want this explained to them? Like, how are you explaining to them what their life's going to look like when they go home? And it, it confirmed everything I already thought I needed to do, talking about self-isolation and putting yourself in a situation where you're not going to risk other people's health or safety. And that's what I do a lot with them, you know, the ones that are healthy enough to go somewhere where they can get out of the hospital. It's really hand hygiene, get up, yeah. get moving, don't let yourself be still, um, and self-isolation. Once they get out, the other side of that is educating them on, yes, they may have the virus or they may be a rule-out situation of the virus, but that's probably not the only reason they're there at the moment. Yeah. And they, they like to perseverate on that and focus in on the virus and they get really down on the situation. When sometimes, especially when they're being tested, it's not the best thing to focus on that. It's really the best thing to just say, hey, let's get up, let's get moving. We can't rule this in, we can't rule this out, but we can work with you right now. We can do what we can do right now. Right, absolutely. So Caitlin asked a question about discharge. She asked, in regards to discharge recommendations, where have patients with COVID been discharged? And are you noticing any patterns in discharge? Uh, yeah, there was a kind of a big limit with that initially. The, uh, the skilled nurse facilities and the inpatient rehabs were all very hesitant and there were very strong stipulations to get a COVID positive patient out. Going home, I was really encouraged to look in that direction. But after talking with my rehab director and letting her know that I wouldn't recommend that if I didn't feel it was safe or within our scope, she confirmed that that was the right thing to do. Obviously, I was maybe being a little too over overly righteous i don't know what the right word is with that but she she said just use clinical judgment do the right thing and that's kind of how i felt with it you know the pattern is it's scary i'll say that because i had two people that i recommended to go home initially that were you know would have been good candidates for home health up in the room walking with a walker two liters of oxygen working their way down sat staying good 92 93 94 doing solid work, you know, they just need the walker to go home with and work with home health and get back on their feet. And three days later, they're on 15 liters of oxygen. Wow. I, 
it, it made me incredibly gun-shy. And that's the first thing I discuss with those care teams as I talk about discharge plans. My pattern that I picked up on it is, especially when I'm dealing with somebody who's positive, is just wait a day or two. Mm-hmm. Even if I see them, if they just got there and they're doing really good or we just got the outcome of the test, just wait a day or two because this thing can turn itself on its head at any given moment. Um, but yeah, places are opening up now. We're getting a little bit more readiness, preparedness from the facilities around here, and that's helped a ton. Good, good. Yeah, that does definitely sound scary, um, but it seems like y'all are doing a great job of kind of like learning as you go, and I think that that's sort of the nature of what everybody's dealing with right now. Um, you touched on this question already a little bit as well. Um, Sarah asks, what prior learning opportunities helped prepare you for this transition and current role? How did your DPT education, prior work experience, and leadership experience prepare you to work in the acute care setting during this unprecedented healthcare situation? Wow, that's a lot. Um, so the first part of that question was what resources helped me out. So uh, resources, as far as that goes, I was keeping up with a lot of how the virus was spreading initially. Mm-hmm. I have an OCS in my clinic who's been there for 20 years. Um, he's been working in that hospital and in the outpatient clinic for 20 years, and he was really supplying me with a lot of good information about where this is going, what to prepare for, how to really get the ball rolling once this all started. He's the actual other COVID therapist that stepped in with me on the floor. So that was really, really good. Um, I would say the thing that prepared me best to go into it, though, was just staying in the acute setting as much as I can. I mean, I'm getting married in October, so for me, it was pick up as many shifts on the weekends as I can, and that meant working in the hospital. So, I mean, I was just there. I was entrenched and I, I wouldn't say I was ever, I'm ever an expert in acute care physical therapy, but I kept my skills sharp enough to feel confident to walk in there. And that's probably the, the best thing that's helped me is the 10 weeks of clinical experience I had going in there. I mean, for people that haven't signed up for clinicals or don't know what you want to do yet, please go into as many settings as you can. I mean, it is, it's crazy how much that opens you up. Um, so that helps a ton. And then, the leadership positions, you know, I, I, a lot of people have asked me that for the last couple of years. It was more of just a networking opportunity to meet with people who have become mentors and people I can call on a regular basis, which I've been doing since I started working on May 22nd, I think is what it was, or whatever that day after the holiday was. Um, so many long phone calls about, you know, I'm smart enough to know what I'm doing. I'm smart enough to get to a couple solutions, but I need I need help putting the picture together. Um, I feel confident in my skills, but I always have people that I'm relying on to to be the other voice in there. As I, there are things that I don't consider in the acute care setting. That's my CI that's still there. That's the therapists that have been there 10 or 15 years. Just because they're not on that code unit, not in that floor with me, doesn't mean they haven't been there for 10 or 15 years and they can open my eyes to some things that I may not be seeing. Right, right. So smart enough to know what you're doing and smart enough to know when to ask for help. Too. Exactly. Um, I think a lot of us, meaning us students, know you as someone who's been in leadership. And, that's, you know, I touched on in the beginning, that's how we met as well. And so um, another sort of question for you about leadership, Elise asks, do you believe that your previous involvement in service leadership as a student impacted your willingness to quickly transition and step into this new role? Yeah, um, truthfully, that goes without saying. Um, the story is I, I've been so inspired by all the stories I've heard, you know, especially I, I went back, I did a lot of stuff with the FAFSAs there towards the end of my tenure on the board. 
APTS fellows and if you just sit with a couple of them and ask them how they started, where their roots were, how they grew into the professionals they are, you will hear some amazing things. And I've just been hungry for that from the start. I've always been hungry for knowledge. I've always enjoyed learning, but their experiences and what they've done in the profession, who they've worked with, how they've worked with, what they've worked through. I mean, this was a situation to where it was a blessing for me. When they opened this up and they allowed me to step into this world, you know, I didn't feel like I made, I was the best fit, but I was determined to make myself the best person for the job. Yeah. Are there any stories or pieces of advice that come to mind when you think about the mentorship that you've gotten over the past few years you could share with us? Oh, uh, gosh, just be open and show up. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's as simple as it gets. I mean, there's a lot of us who have a lot of pride in what we do and who we are, and I think you should stand by strongly with your education and what you know in your own research but you should also be open to constructive criticism and you should welcome it wholeheartedly especially from people that have been in the field for a long time you have the knowledge and you have the education to pick apart the things that are told to you and taught to you and apply them to your skill set how it best suits you but if you're not open to it you'll never grow in that manner and then just showing up if you say you're going to be somewhere be somewhere if somebody's lecturing if somebody's talking if somebody is engaging with you in a conversation, trying to deliver their knowledge on you, be there, be present. Yeah, fantastic advice. Um, so Riyadh has a question about being a PT at all in this setting. And he asks, how have patients reacted to being seen by a PT during the pandemic? So have any of your patients been surprised at all that uh, physical and occupational therapy is part of this? Or do you feel like that's something that um, kind of makes sense to the patient just as much as it does to us? Uh, I wouldn't say it makes as much sense to them as it does to us, per se. Um, generally speaking, I think mostly they're excited that somebody's in the room with them. Mm -hmm. So that always helps. Um, I've had a pretty good track record in acute care with people not really turning me down, with the exception of a couple cases. Um, but in this situation, they're just thrilled that I'm in there. Yeah. And so they're happy to work with me in regards to, to that situation. They're happy to do anything with me because I'll just talk to them. I'll be there with them. I'll make it, you know, a social experience where they're feeling like they're isolated from the world. Yeah. Do you think there's anything specific about your communication style or anything that you've been able to do that you feel like has particularly helped you in not only being there with them, but motivating them and helping them to feel kind of safe and secure where they're at? Yeah, I would say that uh, the best style of my communication in regards to that is just redirecting them in okay. how they're they're talking to me or talking to the other professional that's in the room. Um, we still get a lot of other things going on because just because the pandemic's going on doesn't mean there's people that aren't having strokes, aren't getting right. injured, aren't having exacerbations of other issues. And these people are the embodiment of all that. You know, we have people that perseverate. We have people that are depressed anxious outside of the COVID situation. Right. So talking with them and, and redirecting their thought process in that, you know, I'm not there to just get you up and move. I'm here to improve your life. I'm here to be the stepping stone that gets you out of this room. I'm here to be the person that you can look forward to coming in and spending more than 10 minutes with you. Yeah. And when then they start talking about their situation and how it might be sad or lonely, it turns into, well, I'm here now. What else do you need to lay on me? Put it all out there. Let's go. 
But while you're doing it, let's get up and walk. Yeah. So this kind of more question from from me, but how do you not bring a lot of that home with you, or do you? And have you found strong coping strategies to be able to hold that for people? So one of the cool parts of this situation is I've had a lot of continuity with these patients. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be a lie if I said I didn't bring it home. Mm-hmm. That, that just that would be impossible. Um, it, there's a lot of people I worry about. And there's a lot of people I'm very happy for. Mm-hmm. You know, the coping strategy at home is that, you know, I have my uh, my faith. I have the people that I love. Um, I have a good foundation for what I'm doing, and I know that I'm helping them to an extent, so that helps somewhat. Um, but I also get the the inner the energy and the, the recharge factor of I'm going to go there and see them again tomorrow. And if I'm not going to work with them, I'm going to ask how they're doing. I'm going to walk by that room and see how they're doing. You know, these are my people. You know, I, I, I want to see them succeed, and I have to be part of the team that gets that going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we're nearing close to the end of the time. We've got a few more questions here from students, if that's okay, James, if you've got a little bit of time. Um, but if you do have a question, go ahead and post it now. Um, so Sabrina asks, how do you think your experience working with patients who are COVID positive will affect or change how you practice or treat your patients in the future? Uh, so this kind of ties into another answer earlier. I think it's really sharpened my evaluation skills. Um, I think I've looked for things in this room because I've been in there alone and I haven't had other staff to look for and ask questions to, um, you know, whether that's checking other parts of the body, you know, I know they've been in bed for a long time, really examining the entirety of the person and preventing those secondary complications. It's sharpened my skills as a therapist in this setting and other settings across the board because I'm an outpatient therapist. Like I said earlier, I brought the, um, those, those evaluation skills into the room. And so, you know, I, you're still going through your good neuro screens. You're still catching some things in there that are a little bit wonky, a little bit weird. And uh, I think putting the two on top of each other has been a huge help in making me a better overall therapist. Yeah. Um, so this is the last question that I have from, from a student. Um, and it's, uh, a question that I actually asked you before we even hit uh, go live. So asks, what does a typical day look like for you at work? I guess that's a pretty simple part of it that we never really touched on. Yeah, uh, man, I, I am so blessed. My work is awesome. The, uh, the outpatient clinic was eight to four most days, you know, a very, very simple schedule. In the inpatient clinic, you were inpatient in the hospital. You do a little bit of it yourself. Your schedule's there when you go in. Um, you're kind of working your eight-hour day, however you see fit. For me, I like the mornings, so I get up nice and early. I get to the hospital at seven, chart review till about seven thirty, hit the floor, and then uh, you know I grind till about four, four thirty every day. You know, picking up patients as I go, um, whether it's you know in the critical care COVID area, whether it's in the COVID positive floor where they're a little bit better off, or you know helping out wherever I can. Well, fantastic. Well, that was all the questions that I have, but is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you'd want our viewers to know? Mm. No, I think this has been uh, really, really enjoyable. And I think I want to echo a little bit about what we talked about earlier in the class of 2020 and how you guys have just had to jump into all this adversity so early on before you even hit the real world. It's uh, 
it's been incredible, y'all, to read everything and to be behind you and listen to your stories and see all the the frustration and the pain, but then the overall just love that y'all are giving each other. So it's special. Y'all are y'all are a special class. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, James, like I mentioned in the beginning, you have been a very strong mentor to me. I hope it's okay if people want to reach out to you if they have you know, questions, they want to offer their love and support. So where can people find you? Oh, goodness. Asking me all these questions. Um, yeah, so I have Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. If you want my personal number, just message me. I'm, I'm okay to give it out. <laughs> um, so do you want, to, you want me to drop that anywhere or... If you want, you can just say it, and then someone from our board of directors will drop it in the comments. Oh, gotcha. Okay, so uh, Instagram, I guess, is is Doc J Newman, and then Twitter, I think, is the same thing. Yeah, Doc J Newman for both of them. There's an underscore in the Twitter, and there's a couple periods in Instagram, and Facebook is just James Newman. So if anything comes up or I can help you in any way. Please reach out. You know, I appreciate all the love and support. Um, if you're going through any kind of situation with your clinicals or you're worried about where your career is heading, I promise you I've been through a lot in a very short part of my career. I've been to a lot of different places. So reach on out. Yeah. You heard him. Everyone reach out. But I just want to echo what I said in the beginning. Um, James, your patients are very lucky to have you. Your team is very lucky to have you. And I just want to thank you for the time that you've taken to mentor us. And uh, personally, thank you for everything that you've done for me over the past few years. It means a lot. It's been an absolute pleasure. You guys are killing it. All right. Thanks, friend. All righty. Thank you, everyone, so much for joining in. Um, if you didn't get to catch this live, obviously let your friends know that this is still going to be available on the APTA Students Facebook page. And if you want to contact James, his contact information is now in the comments. All right. Stay safe, everyone. Take care. Bye. Okay. Official guidance is changing rapidly as the COVID-19 outbreak continues to evolve. APTA has set up a webpage to keep you informed at www.apta.org coronavirus. Please visit regularly and stay safe. We're all in this together.